I don't typically give two sermons in a row. I normally just give a sermon the last day of each month, but what we did was the fourth Shabbat last week, and Brian has graciously agreed to do Midrash this afternoon, so I will stay out of his way. And what I'll do is I'll sort of continue where I left off last week, if that's all right. For those of you who are not here or those who were need some reminder, what we're living in right now is the pendulum swing at the end of the Reformation. The Reformation was a rebellion against the authority of the church. And for the authority of the church, they substituted the authority of reason. And we are now at the end of that swing, and what we're finding is reason by itself doesn't get it. Autonomy, which is what was enshrined in the Reformation, also doesn't get it. And autonomy, again, to remind you folks, is a Greek word which means auto, as in self-doing, like an automatic transmission or an automatic weapon. It does things by itself. And nomos, law. So autonomy means that you are a law unto yourself. And what has happened is we've become detached from reality. We see that every day here in our society where absolute rampant craziness is now bubbling up all over the place because there's nothing to stop it. So in our society today, reality has become negotiable. In other words, I get to make up my own reality. Doesn't matter what you say, what you think, I am a law unto myself and I get to make up my own reality. And of course, that doesn't work. And what I exhorted you to do last week is to become judgmental. What you need to do is you need to look at the situation and you need to say, that's wrong. That is no correspondence in reality. And what I said last week is exactly right. However, it is incomplete. So what I want to do this time is complete it. I was reading yesterday in the Psalms and the cycle of where I am came up with Psalm 12 and that corresponds exactly to where we are. And I said, huh, what a coincidence. And, you know, coincidence not being a closer word. So I'm going to read you Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. That sound like where we are? Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Is that perfect? (laughs) That's that's an absolute perfect description of what I talked about last week. So I figured God wanted me to talk about it again. My lightning fast mind just picks up on that stuff right away. So what we're dealing with right now is in verse 4, Psalm 12, With our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? 
So that, I am suggesting, is we make up our own reality. In other words, we can speak whatever we want and our tongues will make us prevail. Does that sound pretty much like the political class in the United States right now? I mean, can anybody look at most of the politicians up there and not just be incensed because you know they're lying? They don't even bother to conceal it very much anymore. The antidote to that is, of course, the words of the Lord, which are pure. And what I want to talk to you about today is how to avoid becoming the church in Ephesus of Revelation. Because we are the church of Ephesus. This congregation, if you read about the church in Ephesus, that's us. Let me back up a second. Those of you who have been in Tuesday Bible studies over the past several years have heard this before, but I want to bring everybody up to speed. There are seven kingdom parables in the book of Matthew. There are seven pastoral letters that Paul writes, Romans, Ephesians, so forth. There are seven letters to seven churches that Yeshua speaks in Revelation. So you have three sets of seven. Each one of those three sets of seven deals with the same subject. But it deals with it on a different time horizon. So Yeshua's seven kingdom parables in Matthew, and they're in Matthew chapter 13. The seven kingdom parables are from the time horizon of Yeshua before the crucifixion. So he speaks these parables before the crucifixion. The letters of Paul, of course, are after the crucifixion. And they cover exactly the same subject, and there's one to each of seven churches. And then the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are from a time horizon later yet, where Yeshua says the same things to seven churches from a later time horizon. So you've got three time slices, if you will, same subject in each of the seven. I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously. I mean, it would take too long. But what I'm going to assert is that the parable of the sower, the letter to the Ephesians of Paul, and the letter to the Ephesians of Yeshua are all talking about the same thing to the same audience. I could develop that. I don't have time to do that today. So just bear with me, and and I'll assert that for right now. But it is, in fact, correct. And, oh, by the way, they're all conceptually addressed to us and to the church in Ephesus, because I'm I'm asserting that we are very much like the church in Ephesus. That's our temperament. You know, each um, congregation has a different temperament. I mean, you go to another messianic congregation, and they'll have a different temperament than we do, which is is fine. I mean, I'm not throwing rocks at anything. But our temperament is very much like the church in Ephesus that is described in these three passages of Scripture. And so it starts off with the parable of the sower. And I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. I'm not going to read the parable itself. I'm going to read Yeshua's explanation. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what is sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among the thorns, 
This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but basically you've got four kinds of soil. First kind of soil is barren. Second kind of soil is rocky. Third kind of soil is untended. In other words, nobody's taken care of it. And as Ray has famously said many times, you've got a choice. You can either grow food or you can grow weed, but the ground is going to grow something. So the third kind of soil is untended. Nobody's taking care of it. And of course, the fourth kind is fruitful. Now, obviously, you all know the soil that we're talking about is the human heart. The seed is the word of God. And it's key here that you understand that the seed is the word. Now, I'm going to go from there to Ephesians, and I'm going to pick it up in chapter 4. And the thing about Ephesians is the first three chapters of Ephesians are complete. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, Sayonara, guys, amen. And it's very obvious that the letter's over. And it's like, God reached down and grabbed him by the stacking tool and says, uh, son, you're not done here. And so we now go on to chapter 4 and just keep on going, but that was clearly not in Paul's agenda when he started writing the letter because, as I say, it's obvious that he finishes the thing after chapter 3. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 4, which I'm going to again assert. This is the thing that God said, uh, Paul, you're not done. You've got something else to talk. And so I'm now down in chapter 4, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the reason he's given these gifts, apostles, prophets, and so forth, is for the purpose of equipping the saints, you, for the work of ministry and building up the body of Messiah. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Again, does that sound sort of like where we are? Isn't that what we talked about back in Psalm 12? Our lips are going to get us whatever we want. So the word then is a specific against being blown every which way. And he uses a naval metaphor here, tossed about at sea. So the word is your sea anchor that keeps you from flapping around. Now verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Messiah, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So notice what we have introduced here. In the parable of the sower, we're talking about the word. 
and the word sown in the human heart. And you got four conditions of soil. You got barren soil, you got rocky soil, you got untended soil, and you got fruitful soil. But it's the word in the soil. Now we have the word, and we have added this concept of love. So now let's run on to Revelation 2. And this is now Yeshua speaking to the same church in Ephesus. And he's speaking on the same subject. So you got the same subject now three times on three different time horizons. I'm going to go ahead and pick it up in verse 2. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 1. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you have endured patiently and bearing up for my name's sake that you have not grown weary. This is a church that knows the word of God. That's their speciality. They know the word of God. They are good at the word of God. And they are able to take false apostles who come in with a three-day pass and a briefcase and say, this is what God says. And they look them right between the eyes and say, that's wrong. And the only way they can do that is because they know the word. You guys know the word. That's one of the things that is a characteristic of this church. We like to study. Other people like to pray. Other people like to praise. All different congregations have different characteristics. This one likes to study. So you are able to find these false apostles, and you're going to, wait a minute, that's wrong. And that's good. But the letter goes on. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Love just came up again, didn't it? So we started back with the parable of the sower. Was love mentioned there? Just the soil and the word. Letter to the Ephesians. Second half of the letter when God grabs Paul by the collar and shakes him and says, you've got, you've got more to say here, guy. What comes up there? Love. So Paul is telling the Ephesian church, yeah, you need to study the word, but you also need to operate in love. And now Yeshua is saying, you guys really did good in the studying the word, but you've missed the love part. You see the progression here. So let me read it again now. Revelation 2.4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned, abandoned, the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Notice he's calling them to repentance. So this failure of love that they have is something so serious that the Messiah himself says, you guys need to repent. And there's going to be consequences if you don't. So where I left you all last week at the end of this is you were the Ephesian church who was looking at the false apostles of this world and you were saying that's wrong. So now what we're doing is we're picking up from there and we are saying there's something else then that you have to do. You have to avoid the fate of the Ephesian church by the time Yeshua saw fit to write them a letter. He calls them to repent. So the question becomes, what is the sin and how does a failure of love manifest itself? And one of the problems that we have, that we're experienced, that we deal with, 
is you have grown up now with 2,000 years of Christianity and 500 years of the Reformation, and the word love has become to mean something different than what it meant when this was written. And love now has become confused with eroticism. Okay, and a lot of erotic love is great fun. You know, I, I do some of it myself. But that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, so what we need to do is figure out what's going on. And at the risk of stepping on Brian's toes, what is the name that God uses of himself when he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? Jehovah, the God of love and relationship. So when Jehovah takes out Sodom, I will suggest to you that he is doing that in love. So I'm suggesting to you that the word love is perhaps not what the modern church and modern society thinks of it as. Yeshua, speaking to the church in Ephesus, says, you guys are doing good in the word, but you have abandoned, notice, abandoned love. What does he say to do when he says repent? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. So there's something that they're supposed to be doing, works of some kind. This is not, I expect you to summon up some sort of a gooey emotion. That's not what's being said. And I will suggest to you that a whole bunch of the church, when they talk about love, are talking about some sort of a gooey emotion where they do something really scummy, but they really feel good about it. That's not what's being said here. There's works involved. And what I will suggest to you is the works are that you are to be engaged with your neighbor and you are to make of them disciples. That's a work of love. Now, making of someone a disciple is not necessarily always pleasant to them. So let's talk about discipleship. Let's talk about how you make someone a disciple. And I will suggest to you, by the way, that discipleship can fix the three defective types of soil. Because what's wrong with the first type of soil? The one that's the path. It's barren. And why is it barren? Lack of understanding. When anyone hears the word and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The first kind of soil, which is barren, is soil where the hearer doesn't understand. Now, you guys should be really good at fixing that. That should be right in your wheelhouse because you guys understand the word. And so when someone hears the word and does not understand it, you folks should be really good at explaining it to them. So the first kind of soil that we're dealing with, the soil on the path, the barren soil, you ought to be able to fix that. All you have to do is engage because you can fix that kind of soil. What's the second kind of soil? Rocky. That soil needs to be broken up. There we are talking about hardness of heart. And that soil needs to be broken up. The third kind is soil that is untended. In other words, all kinds of seeds are falling on that soil, and because the gardener is not tending that soil, 
the weeds choke out the word. I will suggest that the weeds are competing ideas. Now, it is an unfortunate fact of this world that no bad idea ever goes away. I had supper with Matthew and Aaron last night, and Matthew is reading the early church fathers right now. And one of the things I said to him is, you need to really be careful because there's a lot of garbage in the early church fathers. Everybody looks at the early church fathers as, oh man, these were the closest ones and these are the smartest and these really devout people and on and on, and many of them were. But there were also a lot of junk there. And the junk doesn't go away. My favorite one is Marcion, who's not a church father, who was finally declared a heretic, thank God. But his thing was, you don't want to mess with the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is a different being than this Jesus guy And this Jesus guy is love and compassion. That God of the Old Testament is violent and judgmental and nasty. You don't want to mess with him. You want to be over here. That's a heresy. And he was declared a heretic. But it doesn't go away. It's still alive and well in our churches. And I'm suggesting to you those are weeds. Those are weeds that grow up and they choke out the word. And again, you all should be fairly good at pulling weeds. Now, understand that the one whose heart is the soil is the one that only has to pull the weed, but you can certainly point out, that's a weed. What do you got, cornflakes for brains? Believe in that? That's not true. That's not biblical. It's not right. You should be good at that. Now, one of the problems that we have, and we've said it before, is our educational program is lousy, and it's lousy by design. The first time I came in contact with this, I was clear back in the Episcopal Church, and I was teaching Sunday school. And I was just handing the kids a Bible and said, all right, now read this passage and let's talk about it. These are upper middle class white kids. These are not kids from failed inner city schools or any of that kind of stuff. They're Longmont Episcopalians, okay, which is just as white bread and middle class as you can find. Good kids. They didn't understand the words in the Bible. Some of them couldn't even read the words in the Bible. They just couldn't. And it was a failure of education. They were not taught how to read. And I believe that this failure of education is deliberate. And it's designed so that the word of God, when it falls on soil that is barren because the soil has no understanding, the words will land on that soil and they will not understand it. That's by design. So, you all have a responsibility. Because you understand the Word of God, you are in a position to sow the Word of God, and you are also in a position to recognize what kind of soil you are dealing with and help the one who is tending that soil to break up the rocks, to make the soil so it is not barren, and so that the Word of God can be planted and grow. And in order to do that, you have to engage. It is not enough for us to sit here inside this church and become the church in Ephesus, which is really smart, really well-studied, really knows the word of God, really isolated. And because it is isolated, it is ineffective. And what Yeshua says is you need to repent of that. Now, engagement requires a relationship. You've got to deal with other people. 
And first off, you need to be judgmental, like I said last time. You need to be able to look at a situation and say, no, that's not right. But you also need to be able to comfort people because a lot of people out there, especially the ones who are the most deceived, are in great pain. And if they don't know that you care about their pain, they're not going to listen to your words, which means that you have to come up beside them and be a comfort to them. Now, at some point, you've got to tell them the truth. Don't get me wrong. Being a comfort to them doesn't mean reinforcing them in their error. That's not loving. And then the final thing is you need to teach. And like I say, you all should be really good at that because you all have the word. I'm going to close with a passage from Acts. I'm in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. And this is the passage about the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, my take on this, do with this whatever you like, is this Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem on business, went into the airport bookshop and picked up a copy of Isaiah to read on the chariot on the way home. Okay? That's sort of my setup of this story. You can believe anything you want, but it makes more sense to me that way. So he's in his chariot or wagon or whatever he's riding on, and he's reading this, the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip comes up and runs up to him and says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So the word of God requires interpretation. We have a couple of problems. Many of the people in this society can't read the words themselves because they have such a lousy education. That's problem number one. Problem number two is even among the people who actually can read the Word of God, there's a problem of understanding. The scriptures in many cases are difficult to understand, especially if you start in the middle of Isaiah. A little easier back in Genesis, but by the time you get to Isaiah, there's some difficult stuff in there. And if you don't have the background, you don't understand it. So your job to prevent becoming the church in Ephesus who is rebuked by Yeshua is to do like Philip did. Philip didn't know this guy. In fact, God picked him up by the scruff of his neck and dropped him in front of this guy and says, go talk to him. Who, me? But Philip does. And the eunuch has got the book. And by the way, eunuch has a different connotation It doesn't necessarily mean a male who was altered in that time. It simply means an official. And this guy has got this book that he picked up in the airport bookshop, and he's trying to read it. He doesn't understand it. And God drops Philip there and says, go talk to this guy. And Philip immediately says, do you understand it? No, I don't understand. How am I going to understand it unless somebody tells me? That's your job. And what I'm suggesting to you is the failure of the Ephesian church that Yeshua feels it necessary to address is a Philip who is put in a position to help and doesn't. And that's what you've got to avoid. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.